So tonight I usually try to give myself some kind of outline to uh, traverse this uh, territory of of uh, allowing the Dharma to unfold uh, for us. So my outline goes like this. Sitting still, surrendering to the river, oh, the shining, the shining. Sitting still, surrendering to the river, oh, the shining, the shining. So tonight we've been uh, exploring uh, a lot about uh, this sitting still and uh, the clarity that is necessary this word vipassana is to see clearly it's translated as that so from the stillness uh, we begin to quiet and see and see uh, into this really human dilemma. One of the things we have to hold here, this is called, uh, the the practice is really the middle way. Uh, And the middle way is holding on one side this clarity, this ability to see the nature of the conditions of how we operate. And that that leads to wisdom. And that wisdom leads to uh, action that doesn't cause us suffering. So that's one side. The other side, the balance of that, is that um, the sure heart's release Uh, the releasing from the suffering itself uh, and seeing into this the conditions is a heart that opens and softens uh, and is not based on fear but is based on this interconnectedness uh, this uh, from this seeing clearly this ability to respond uh, to life There's a wonderful quote that uh, I hold dearly and have held for years, and it's, it's kind of this mantra that gives me great inspiration. And it comes from a, a teacher in Bombay. Uh, he's called the Bidiwala, uh, Sri Nisargadath Maharaj. And it goes, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And somewhere between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And somewhere between the two, 
my life flows. This wisdom tells me uh, I'm nothing. Uh, This practice is first coming and sitting, this sitting still. And what is it that uh, we notice when we sit still? We actually notice the rapidity, this movement that's happening this flow. So it's actually an oxymoron coming here and saying, oh, I'm going to get still and quiet and, uh, you know, that's going to be peace and whatever. But what it does, it magnifies uh, the truth of your mind as it is. Someone wrote me a, a note asking uh, today how come uh, I came to this practice so early, and actually I came very early to this practice. Uh, my first silent retreat was a year long, and I was four and a half years old. So that's the beginnings of uh, of my practice, actually. And I looked back at it, and I realized that uh, it was based on trauma and suffering. And I'll I'll give you a little kind of story around it because I think it, it, um, exemplifies what's kind of underneath all this. Is that, uh, when I was a child, two months old anyway, my parents uh, lived in uh, Guatemala and El Salvador my father had a factory there. And being uh, the unstable place it is, um, in uh, about 1950 there was a revolution there and my father uh, had a factory that, with the Indians there. And uh, they burned the factory down and uh, you know, less than 10 or 12 hours uh, we were sort of packed up and left there. And I had been brought up uh, spending most of my time with my Aya or um, my nursemaid who was a, a Mayan uh, Indian and had actually taught me their language, which was a, some type of Kichikali. And whatever happened in that period, which I don't know, I've gone back in therapy and worked and worked with this. But uh, by the time we came to the States, I stopped speaking. And uh, within a few months, I was uh, actually at the University of Kentucky in a a school there for autistic children. Um, And over time, in a year, what I remember is that finally I got angry (laughs) And, and came out of it in some way. 
But in that time, I believe there was some kind of deep... uh, uh, They used to say that my sister, that I could... I don't know what's true or not, that I could sort of telepathically tell her what I wanted, you know, or needed in some way. But I also, uh, when I came to this practice uh, in the 60s, what a relief it was to simply stop. And uh, this practice of uh, silence and already having this sense of what going inward was, maybe not the right way, but uh, I had that. But it wasn't about wisdom. A lot of it was based on uh, retreat and uh, fear and suffering. And so I know in a sense that when we come to this practice, uh, the difficulty of first just sitting down and shutting up uh, and listening, that it unearths first all the uh, kind of questions and torments and, and uh, confusions and the kind of uh, complexity uh, of this mind-body process. But also this has been uh, a practice that's been there probably for 4,000 years or longer. And that the Buddha 2,500 years ago, was he was just this marvelous, um, like a, a, a map maker. And he was able to lay down the steps uh, very clearly of how you go from this confusion and this suffering to a place of freedom. But there's this confusion, this very fundamental confusion that we all are caught on. And what we're trying to do here is learn it for ourselves. Not things I say or how he says, but uh, how uh, you learn uh, when there is uh, fear or remorse or anger or jealousy in the mind. What's it doing? I use this analogy of the river, this uh, surrendering to the river. And one of the things we do in this practice is we sit and uh, we begin to see that uh, it's maybe not as stable uh, and as solid as we believe it is. What it is, is beginning to recognize 
that there's this flow, this river. We're the constant, if we put our attention in the body, it is something that is in constant flow, constant movement. Uh, there's no place where when the mind moves and comes back, it's not the same even body. And we began to recognize the truth of this flow. And the uh, instability. What we began to notice is that in our own minds, we are always looking towards the shore. And in looking towards the shore, we believe that somehow that there is uh, something solid and stable there. And so we're always grappling for the shore. And sometimes if you're really fortunate, you know, you find a nice little rock and you grab a hold of it and you hold on. And uh, as long as you're strong enough, you can hold it for a while through your willpower, uh, through your uh, mental or emotional strength. But eventually, you will let go. But as long as you turn towards the shore and believe that somehow that's where your happiness lies. That somehow, if you can, uh, either accumulate or hold, or grapple onto, that you'll be all right. And so it's this constant struggle of going towards that shore. And you fight it. And what happens here is one begins to question if that's true. When there's a pain in the body and you uh, struggle it, you try to you know, figure out how to change it or for it to be some other way. What are you learning? You're learning it's there for a while, and, and, and all things, they pass in this river, in this flow of things, this impermanent phenomena. And after we're there for a while, and we begin to, really this wisdom begins to arise then we may recognize we're maybe pointed in the wrong direction, that there may be some other way to be. This is from the Venerable Ajahn Chah. Having reached this point, you know something of the path, but you must also be able to contemplate sense objects Turn your tranquil mind towards sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts and mental objects and mental factors. Whatever arises, investigate it. Notice whether you like it or not, whether it 
it pleases or displeases you, but do not get involved with it. This liking and disliking are just reactions to the world of appearances. You must see a deeper level. Then whether something initially seems good or bad, you will see that it is only impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty. File everything that arises into those three categories. Whatever it is, good, bad, evil, wonderful, whatever it is, put it in one of those categories. This is the way of practice by which all things are calmed. And so one, as one sits and one sees this struggle in the dilemma and begins to recognize this wisdom begins to come and be self-illuminated, that one turns out towards the deeper water. And at first, we're not trained to even look out towards deeper water. And so usually we kind of tiptoe a little bit out there and we have to have our feet on the ground and the sand and the gravel kind of move around and, and um, uh, we have little faith or trust. that uh, pointing in that direction is the right way. But there are moments where one either gets the current is swift and one is pulled up. And you struggle some, thinking, oh, uh, I'll drown. I'll go under. But what's true is that uh, as one practices and sees this, one begins to recognize that there is a way, this surrendering to the river, surrendering to the flow, that ultimately this is about that surrender. Uh, And that surrender is about the present, about what's right here as you sit here right now. It is the way it is, the suchness of the moment. Uh, If there's no past and there's no future, it's just empty phenomena arising, being experienced, and passing. As we begin to recognize that, this surrender to this flow, For moments when one is just here in this suchness, one begins to realize that there's no need to struggle. Actually, your nature is that you float and that the the flow will carry you. You can't stop the flow. It is what it is. But you can relax and allow one to move in the current without struggle. It is possible.
when one begins to recognize that it is possible uh, to surrender to this flow and uh, that one is not controlled by the fear of being, the fear of being something or someone. That there is a softening, a natural softening that happens. And we begin to, at that point, explore what this word, uh, we have this word love. And it's, it, it's like in the Tibetan language, there are 13 words for mind. We have one. There's mind body, mind heart, mind thought, uh, mind past, uh, mind future. These are all uh, words for mind. Uh, and we have one. And we also have one word for love. But I think it's important to distinguish out in the river what the love I'm talking about. Because there's also a love that happens towards the shore, that is pointed towards the shore, that's somewhat different. This is a bit long, but I'll read it. It's actually from Who Dies, uh, from Stephen Levine. But it's the best explanation uh, that I've come across. When we use the word love, but we have no more understanding of love than we do of anger or fear or jealousy or even joy because we have seldom investigated what that state of mind is. What are the feelings we so quickly label as love? For many, what is called love is not lovely at all, but is a tangle of needs and desires, of momentary ecstasies and bewilderment. Moments of unity, of intense feelings of closeness, occur in a mind so fragile that the least squint or sideways glance shatters its oneness into a dozen ghostly paranoias. When we say love, we usually mean some emotion, some deep feeling for an object or a person that momentarily allows us to open to another. But in such emotional love, self-protection is never very far away. Still, there is business to the relationship, clouds of jealousy, possessiveness, guilt, intentional and unintentional manipulation, separateness in the shadow of all previous, quote, loves, darken the light of oneness. But what I mean by love is not an emotion. It is not an emotion. It is a state of being. True love has no object. Many speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There is no I and other. And anyone or anything it touches is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone. You can only be unconditional love. It is not a dualistic emotion. 
It is a sense of oneness with all that is. The experience of love arises when we surrender our separateness, our separateness into the universal. It is a feeling of unity. You don't love another, you are another. There is no fear because there is no separation. So this is the best, uh, anyway, I found that explains metta, that it is not an emotion, it is a state of being. And then out in that river, when there's that trust and we surrender, uh, it is the clarity that turned us in that direction. It is that that uh, allows us to go out into the river. But when one recognizes uh, the nature of this flow, then there is a deep sense of kindness and caring, uh, recognizing that uh, all beings, uh, we are confused. We turn towards that shore. It's what we believe. And out of that belief, such incredible, uh, incredible confusion and, and harm comes. This is out of the Sun magazine. It's by D.S. Barnett from uh, Marietta, Georgia. My mother always assured me that unspeakable punishments were bound to befall any child as naughty as I. Quote, if I were you, she'd say, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night for fear God would strike me dead. (laughs) She would speak these words softly, regretfully, (laughs) as though saddened by her errand daughter's fate. I thought myself unloved and unlovable, not only by my mother, but by God himself. In addition to threaten me with thoughts of eternal damnation, mother also gave me a fear of strangers, germs, disease, and food poisoning. (laughs) A precocious and imaginative child, I added to this list some bizarre fears of my own, rare ailments learned from medical dictionaries, (laughs) falling into the fifth dimension, spontaneous human combustion, When I was suspended from my private girls' school at age 15 for a harmless prank, the headmistress referred to my behavior, quote, damnable. This was no big news to my mother (laughs) or me. What was news was that I had the highest IQ and the lowest grades in the entire student body. (laughs) I took pride in that fact. Although I was a dysfunctional underachiever, at least I wasn't stupid. (laughs) The most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. Now there's little, you know, brackets here. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was a bad timing on my part. She answered, how could anyone ever love you? 
It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently discussing eating disorders with my dietitian, I related a childhood ritual of mine, intending it to be an amusing antidote to illustrate how far back my eating problems went. I even laughed as I spoke, poking gentle fun at myself. It was only when I noticed that my dietitian was watching me with sympathy rather than amusement that I became aware of the tears on my own cheeks. This is what I told her. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I would carry back to my bed with me. There, I would pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting and reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed little bits of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed, I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep, you're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. So this first noble truth is we all have our stories. I'm sure if I sat down with you and, and uh, we kind of went from layer to layer, just birth itself, the trauma of uh, whether you went to the birth canal or not, the whole process of coming in and, and believing somehow that uh, that we could be unconditionally loved. Not so easy. And so ultimately coming to this practice is the awareness that the truth of of how it is for other beings and how we are. What's uh, our own kind of wounding and and, uh, confusion. But there is a gift here. And the gift is your willingness to touch that part of yourself. To touch that part that longed for comfort on the shore. Is the deep part that understands empathy. It understands compassion. It understands love in the most fundamental way. In my uh, early years in Asia, um, being a uh, what adventurer, and um, you know, in the late sixties, going native in India is pretty nuts. Uh, I can assure you. 
and uh, you know everything from typhoid to a couple kinds of hepatitis and <laughs> uh, dysentery for 12 years. You know, it took an incredible toll on me in many ways. Um, drinking the water on the trains and you know uh, dengue fever and being sick so many times. Um, But at the same time, this longing to um, to free and understand uh, the suffering that I had experienced uh, was paramount. It's what what I think for years kept me there. You know, it's actually the suffering in my life that kept me there, and also Vietnam War at that time, and uh, I really. Um, uh, it actually was a support to me because I feared coming back here. Since uh, it was uh, not a healthy place for me at that time. But to feel what's true. And you can do it in yourself. We start with ourselves and we recognize it. And recognizing in ourselves, then looking outwards, what do you see in the world? And yet we can choose. Uh, we can choose to uh, walk in some way of this practice. Is, it starts simply by going from unconsciousness uh, to the self-consciousness, which that self-conscious sees the dilemma, to the freedom, which is just consciousness. So, from unconsciousness to self-consciousness to consciousness. And so, ultimately, this is about getting out of our own way and recognizing that when we dilute that narcissism, narcissism, that there is uh, this natural trust. And that trust understands the dilemma. In my years, and in, in, uh, I did a lot of solitary retreats in, uh, in the 70s and in Asia, and, uh, from caves to, and I was a little bit um, unruly. Uh, 
hard to keep me in the monasteries or uh, even retreat centers. But I spent couple, several years actually in retreat. And the simplicity of what I came out was was when I began to surrender and trust right here, this moment. And that in this moment uh, that uh, I'm enough. I don't have to be somebody else. I can just be myself uh, kind of in my own kind of limping way that I spoke that first night about kind of we all have a limp and that we can own that limp. And then it's looking out and seeing that whatever condition it is, whether um, I remember um, last year in, oh, just in Calcutta going through the streets and having not been, well, I'd been there a year before, but it's always takes me for such uh, uh, kind of shakes me uh, to the bone. It's like Marin County and Calcutta are the two opposite worlds, by the way. (laughs) But there's that place in ourselves that knows wherever we are this the conditions are enough so you're enough and this is enough and the mind turns back uh, on itself and this shining oh this shining this luminosity. Is not separate from, it's not being removed from the world. It is completely in the world. Maybe not of it, but completely in it. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And somewhere between the two, my life flows. stay. It's a lot of work. But every moment of mindfulness, every moment that you bring the attention back to this moment, 
It's a moment of deconditioning. Uh, It breaks into that belief, that view, that judgment, that need for it to be a certain way. Good, we have about uh, 40 minutes uh, for walking this evening. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 2, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.